with author Michael Frank from New York. It's a very special podcast episode today because Michael is our first male interviewee. And I'm just so excited to have Michael on and talk about his new book and also his experience in his own personal life with his wife and infertility. And Michael is the author of a memoir called The Mighty Franks, which was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Gorilla, a Barnes and Noble Discover Great New Writers selection. The memoir was named one of the best books of 2017 by The Telegraph and The New Statesman and won the 2018 J.Q. Wingate Prize in England. Also published by Farrar, Strauss, and Gouraud, his new novel, What is Missing, is among other things, a love triangle, a father-son story, and an exploration of the subject of infertility. It may possibly be the first literary novel to take on the uncharted ground on which families can be built or rebuilt by IVF via the Wall Street Journal. The New Yorker has described the book as a penetrating examination of how a life can be defined by contingency and surprise. And novelist Julie Oranger has said that the book asks the most urgent questions about biology and nurture, about filial and parental love, and about what we're willing to suffer to find out who we are. This is a wise and necessary book, one I've been recommending ardently to everyone I know. Michael recently published an essay in Time magazine about his wife's own experience in what he calls the land of infertility. The link to the timepiece will be in the show notes as well as Michael's website which you can order your own copy of the latest novel What is Missing at michaelfrank.com. I will also have in the show notes the Infertility and Me podcast website as well as you'll be able to connect with me through email or through social media, Instagram and or Facebook. And the website is the infertilityandmepodcast.com. I thank you guys for being here thus far with these last 10 episodes since launching in November on the 22nd. So it's been a little over a month now. And we're doing very well as far as downloads concerned. So I'm thanking you guys again just for being here with me, listening to the stories and allowing it to resonate with you enough to come back for the next week's episode. So I appreciate you guys' support and listenership, and I hope that we can continue to connect and heal together. That is my only intention with the show, is to connect with other warriors going through various paths of fertility and infertility. It means a lot to me. It is a passion of mine, and it has become a passion because of my own journey. And if you haven't listened to the very first episode, which is I Am One and Eight Two, you can check that out if you are new if you are a new listener and you want to know a little bit more about myself and my journey again I appreciate you guys for listening all of the reviews and the feedback in the Apple and iTunes review section of the show and I just hope that in 2020 we can continue to grow and to connect with each with each other and that I can bring you more useful content and encouraging and inspiring content which is what the show was all about through stories, discussions, and getting real and raw and honest about infertility and fertility issues that we all face. And I just wanted to also say Happy New Year to you guys. I hope that 2020 is one of your best years yet in family life, work life, and any other area of your life that you are most focused on. So we're going to get right into the episode with Michael. I thank you again. Peace and blessings. 
Michael, could you please tell us a little bit about your journey? I know you did a timepiece, and I'll have that in the show links for everybody to read as well as your book and your website. So please tell us a little bit about your own journey and experience with your wife and infertility. Well, I will, Monique. First, I just want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm honored to be the first male guest. I hope I'm not the last one. And I think right away, I would just say that infertility affects both members of the couple, gay or straight, uh, regardless of whose body is, you know, more directly being treated. I do think the whole, the, uh, the experience affects both members of the couple differently and in profound ways. And this is not to, to, to say that, uh, that my experience was equivalent to my wife's, but being there with her and going through the same uncertainty and anxiety left a huge mark on me. And it's one of the reasons why 15 years later, I reimagined it uh, as a novel, which is called What is Missing, as you know. Um, what happened was we, we, quite simply, we were an older couple uh, looking at 40 uh, when we met. My wife was still in her late 30s. Okay. We, got we got pregnant easily, which was wonderful and relieving. In fact, one of the earliest things we decided was to have children once we decided to be a couple. I wrote about this in the, in the Time Magazine story that you mentioned. Yes, yes. And um, she had a miscarriage, which we thought, okay, this happens. Uh, we knew a lot of people who've had miscarriages. Of course, there, again, you were be, we were just beginning to enter into a world we knew nothing about, a world with some uh, issues of secrecy and privacy that I think are interesting that maybe we'll talk about. Yeah. Uh, people don't openly discuss their miscarriages, but sure we are fairly don't. open people. We got pregnant again. She had a second miscarriage, always in this range of six to 10 weeks, as I recall. We got uh, pregnant a third time, all of this on our own, without any, any help. Mm -hmm. And again, she had a th another miscarriage. Somewhere between the second and third miscarriage, however, being proactive, high octane, and generally fairly anxious New Yorkers, we went into uh, one of the leading fertility clinics in the city for some evaluation. Right, and in, right. in a word, the diagnosis was, you're older and it takes time. It can take more than a year at your age. And the miscarriages, they said, were simply a product of the body taking care of itself. The body is not going to grow an unhealthy or an unviable embryo. And so right. we took some peace in that and we moved forward. But after the third miscarriage, we knew we needed help. Wow. Wow. That was... Um... It's, you know, sometimes when, well, all the time, and I can probably say this for most of the listeners as well, is that it's, it, even though you know that there may be an issue, it's quite surprising still, and it's very shocking, um, no matter how old you are and whatever exactly. the diagnosis is. So Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, we, as it turns out, there was no diagnosis other than the age of my wife's eggs, basically. But even so, your entire worldview is overnight, or in our case, over many months, upended because you think we found each other, we fell in love, we got married, we want, we both want to have children, which is not true of everybody in every relationship. Exactly. Everyone around us is having children. As, as we were struggling, my brother was having his third child. Our friends were having, younger friends were having many child, many children, even our contemporaries were having children. And he, our parents had had children our friends, as I say, and extended family had had children. And here we were incapable of holding 
keeping a pregnancy. And it's, it, it, all of a sudden you find yourself in this very isolated world, psychologically, financially, emotionally, you're on your own. And it's one of the, you know, this is, this was in the days before a podcast in the days before uh, blogs, of course, there was the internet, but not in, you know, it wasn't in our faces, in our homes, in our daily lives to the degree it is, it is today. And I think if, if it had been, we would have more quickly found a community of the kinds of listeners, for example, that you have on your podcast, people like you, people like many of my uh, other people I've spoken to since the book has been published. But it's the loneliness, I think, is one of the first of the, you know, one of the central themes of infertility, in addition to which, of course, there is probably the biggest theme, which is living with that kind of uncertainty, which I don't know about you, but I found to be extremely difficult. Yeah, it is. And I have one family member who I know for sure, you know, went through all of the process of getting tested to see what her issue was. And, um, but, you know, it was still very isolating. She didn't live in the same, the same state as I did. So it wasn't like I could hug her or I could cry on her shoulder in the same sense, but only speaking to her on the phone. And she did help a lot, but they turned down the the uh, IVF treatment, you know, everybody is not in the financial state that they, that they, they, they right. can to have children. And when she was going through it, there were no laws being passed for insurance company to at least cover the uh, uh, testing phase of right. IVF treatment, you know, so it was very much still def different than my own journey because mm -hmm. I had, we had the cash to pay for, you know, we mm -hmm. knew that at some point, if it came to that, that, we were going to do it. And I had been telling my husband for years that I think something is wrong. I don't know if it's me or if it's you, but I feel like just innately the universe was telling me that something was, wasn't going to, wasn't going to happen traditionally. Mm -hmm. So I definitely feel the, um, the isolation of it all. And as for me, as a woman of color, it was more isolating because those groups that I did find online were full of Caucasian women, very few mm -hmm. black women, very few mm -hmm. Asian women, South Asian women, Hispanic women. So it was even more isolating. And then it's very taboo in the black community and other women of color and men of color communities. It's just not talked about, you know, and it's why, kind of- Why is that, do you think? I think a lot of it is because we don't feel protected by society because of institutionalized racism. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, we have lived our lives guarded in a lot of ways um, mm -hmm. because we don't know how we'll be perceived. You know, sometimes there are people perceive us as being microaggressive or aggressive in general. So it's very difficult to put yourself out there until you come into a place of yourself where you feel confident no matter what um, and no matter how you're treated. So and I found a lot of love in the community even now after mm -hmm. I've gone through treatment. And um, I think that infertility has brought a lot of women from different races and backgrounds and classes together and seeing beyond that because we have the same hurt and the same pain and men as well too. I've, I know a couple of men who have been through it as well in my personal life with their wives and one of them in particular has the issue. So mm -hmm. it's, it, you it's, know, it I brings think people together, you know what does, I mean? It, it, you know, I think it could work two ways. I think, first of all, I think that on the, the racial front, if I can say it that way, it is a great leveler because uh, infertility is not discriminatory, right? It simply exactly. goes after the human body it, it, for reasons that are understood and not understood, which is, of course, one of the great challenges psychologically and mentally is to be struggling with something that the doctors don't always 100% uh, have a diagnosis for. Yeah. Imagine being treated for a disease that they can't quite identify, 
but they are going to attempt to treat you nevertheless. To me, that is often, you know, an approach taken in, in infertility because it's, you know, it's simply saying that your, your eggs are old, for, as in our case, yeah. is not very much of a diagnosis. But the other thing is I found, you know, I found a mixture of both incredible receptivity among the people we knew personally who had gone through infertility struggles and treatment but at the same time, a strange loneliness. You know, I write about yeah. this too, both in the novel and in the essay, um, that, for instance, you end up in those waiting rooms, in those clinics with people who are in the exact same place in time and in life that you are, which I think is a very rare moment. You yeah. all are in that room because you are struggling one way or another with the same issue and you have the same goal. And yet nobody ever spoke. I don't know if that was your, uh, what you discovered when you went through the IVF treatment, but I just was m mesmerized by the strange tension in those rooms, <laughs> you know? And oh you're laughing, gosh. but I found it, you know, that was in the first, you know, we had several rounds of IVF in order to uh, conceive our child, who fortunately was in the end, I don't mind revealing at this point, born. 14 and a half years ago. And the first time I walked into that room, it was like stepping onto the stage of a theater, I thought. You know, a very strange yes, yeah. drama was unfolding and we were part of it. And I think it was really in those early weeks, returning to that room, watching those women and those men, that I thought, I need to tell this story. I need to find a way to reimagine and tell this story, to capture the anxiety and the drama and the expectations, the yearning, the struggling and the suffering that is contained in those rooms, which I found to be so thick, I could practically feel it. And I think that's a very interesting point you made, Michael, about the, the, the drama and the, the unspoken elephant in the room in the clinics when you arrive to see your specialist and consult and or go through the treatment process. I feel that, I felt that, and I can remember the image in my head like it was yesterday uh, in 2016 when I felt that same exact energy walking into the clinic. And I, I said this in one of my previous episodes of Diagnosis that it was almost like you, I walked in and everybody looked at you and it was like they were not trying to make on, eye contact with you. And the, the, my clinic was very pleasant, but at the same time, there was just like, like you said, it was a very strange energy. And it's like you're walking on stage for the first time performing. It's just this, un, this, this unending silence between the couples. Nobody speaks to each other. You right. get a half crooked smile, right. you know, and it's very, oh, it's very strange, very strange feeling. Although think, the clinic is very pleasant in itself. You know what I mean? Right, it's right. I think one of, the issues, one of the issues might be, Monique, that I don't think it's a moment necessarily in life where you want to hear other people's stories so close up. Do you know what I mean? Do you want to sit next to the woman or the man who's having problem X when you're having problem Y or who's succeeding? I mean, you know, when you go in through, if we're getting to get into the nitty gritty, when you come to the day of retrieval and transfer and you're in more communal spaces in the hospital. And for example, you hear a woman tell her husband, oh my goodness, they retrieved 12 eggs or eight eggs and you've only retrieved two. This kind of juxtaposition of different journeys because there no one is going along the same path, even though on the, in the larger sense, you are all wanting the same result. I think those, those smaller steps can be very disconcerting. You, know, you really have to hold it together mentally and emotionally 
it's the it's those raised expectations every month you know with every injection with every ultrasound with every blood test you you're expecting your life to turn and it doesn't always and so i think there's a self-protective uh self-protective remove that people assume in order to get to simply just to get through those weeks don't you think absolutely absolutely and um I, I don't, you know what? I don't have anything to add to that because you said it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something else, the, the other subject I think that it is worth thinking about a little bit in, in this context, of course, is the, um, is the pressure that it puts on the relationship. You know, I don't think people speak very openly about that, how it really changes your intimate life, of course. And uh, it brings a great deal of worry into the marriage. You know, it, 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 it challenges the marriage, I think. It's very hard to stay even, hopeful, and calm when you go through these experiences together. And you're not always in the same place. I don't know if it, that seems truthful to you, but certainly for us, it created conflict. It created anxiety. We were not the same people at the end of the experience that we were going into it by any means. You're absolutely right. And there was a four year between my first IUI, which was my only IUI. I didn't like the clinic. We were living in PA. And so after we moved four years later, that's when we buckled down and said, look, let's gonna, we're going to give it till January 2016. If nothing happens naturally, then we'll go ahead and go to a clinic. And that, oh my gosh, it was, it's almost, I, rem, I going through it, it was almost like I was in a movie or uh, or in like your novel, I was in a novel, you know what I mean? Just walking through, um, going through life, uh, drowning myself in our businesses. There was like this, this unspoken thing that we were carrying around on both of our shoulders. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult to speak about it because you have to first come to terms with it at, in, as an individual, mm -hmm. not even as a couple, to mm -hmm. be able to com comfortably talk about it and speak about it without getting upset. Because at this point, you know, you're not sure about what happened with your body, if it's, your, if it's you or if it's your spouse who has the issue or if both of you have an issue. We did our best, but we didn't always do it at the, at a, at a, at a, in a loving way, um, so right. to speak. Right. So it, 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 it was like an elephant for us for a long time. We just didn't talk about it that much. And when we did, we were so emotional about it. And I know I was so emotional about it, so passionate about it, that it came out as anger when we went through the treatment in 2016, after four years passed by, it was different because I guess we had waited so long to actually get into the groove of it and get serious about it, that we had been able um, to process and come to terms with the fact that there, you know, we might need a specialist mm -hmm. to help us do the thing that our body, that my body wasn't doing naturally. And so I was very angry and I was very shamed. And I felt like, you know, I was letting my husband down because like I said before, I felt like it was me and more than him without yep. even having a diagnosis. I just, you know, you, you just know, you know, sometimes you just know. And when I'm a spiritual person, so a lot yep. of times, you know, I'm always looking into myself and figuring out things, you know, or trying to figure things out. And I just, I always knew that it was me for some uh -huh. reason. And I have mm -hmm. hypothyroidism. So it makes it very mm -hmm. difficult for me to get pregnant naturally. I mm -hmm. can sustain the pregnancy, but it, uh, getting pregnant is my issue. So it was very difficult because um, I'm, a, I'm an A-type alpha female. So me having control over everything, that's what my life was about. You know what I mean? And this is the one thing that I couldn't control. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, snap my fingers or tell an employee to do this. And right. I, you know, I get pregnant. So it was very difficult and it was difficult for my husband too. Um, being the kind of man that he is because he didn't know how to support that in the beginning. 
Um, right. And then once we got to the point, we got serious about it. My husband is a very nurturing type of uh, personality as well. He's very mm-hmm. nurturing, very loving. So I tried to embrace that as much as I could. And I, I had to learn how to be vulnerable. That was one of my mm-hmm. greatest lessons as mm-hmm. the kind of person I am. I had to learn how to be vulnerable and let my walls down at a level that was completely bare and naked because I knew to make it through this, I had to be that way with the specialists and be honest about my past, anything that I had done in my body, whether it was alcohol or marijuana, you know, those kind of things, mm-hmm. you know, you get at, sure. or if sure. there was ever an STD, I never had any issues with STDs, but that's the kind of level of vulnerability you have to be to get through the process and so that they can diagnose you properly. So it's very, um, as a couple, it takes you for a whirlwind and it really tests your relationship as well. So I, I think when I when I said earlier that you don't you come out a, ch- a changed person, yeah. I'm hearing I'm hearing you say also that that the experience altered you, you know. Yeah. That, and the one the one remark that really popped out at me among many in, in what you just said was, you had to learn how to give up control. And I think you know we all live under the illusion that we're in control <laughs> more of our lives than yeah. in fact we are. And I think it's the moments that when you become ill or when you lose someone who's close to you, when you fail at something or when your body lets you down, which is to say the real life moments in which we realize we are not in control, you know? And that is a very difficult thing to wrap your brain around as a certain (laughs) sort of person. It requires a very different kind of spirituality, you know, almost a Buddhist understanding that it's not not what you do, but what you make of what comes at you. That is the real test of being a conscious person. And, And I think that is really, that whole, notion of being out of control and trying to live through the moment is what I really wanted to capture in the novel. And I'm just curious if you thought I did a good job of depicting my uh, female protagonist, Costanza, as she goes through infertility, if it seemed, because I'm always curious to ask women who've gone through it, if it seemed realistic to you. Oh, very realistic. Very realistic. Costanza's situation was a little different than mine just because I was about 32 when we started going through the process and she was a little right. older than me. So right. my experience was different in that sense, but there, the emotions of it all is still the same. You yes. still go through the same phases and you still have that hole that what is missing, you yes. know, in my life, what is that void? You know what I mean? Right. So there was a lot that I still related to. And also from the male perspective, you know, um, my, uh, my husband was very open about how he felt about things, but to read it in your novel just gave me even more insight to the male perspective of, of it all and how you guys also go through having to give up control as well, because the man is the nurturer, the provider, and he is supposed to cover his, you know, his house, household and his wife and his children and such like that, mm-hmm. and not being able to do it in the way that you imagine. Um, mm-hmm. It's very powerful on both, you know, the male and female part. And um, I don't want to get give too much away about the the novel for everybody to read. But you did a very well, very great job, I should say, of portraying the female aspect of it all and being able to write about it so um, and expound upon it so greatly the way that you did. And, well, thank you for saying that. It's, yeah, that's you know, great. This is a question I've gotten as I've traveled with the book often, and I think it's really pertinent to the conversation we're having, which is, you know, this question can be asked in a friendly way or in a somewhat more aggressive way. But the question basically is, how can a man write so closely about a a woman's experience? Yes. You know, and we live in a context now where there are a lot of questions around, you know, the right of the author, the right of the artist to speak of, about people or experiences that he or she has not directly lived. And 
I, I am uh, very respectful of all of the new voices that have uh, joined the conversation culturally or who have always been there but haven't been heard as clearly. But I do believe, <clears throat> excuse me, that men can write about women's experiences and women can write about men's experiences. In fact, that they have to because yeah. writing like living uh, brings us all together. You know, we, yeah, we, yeah. We, can't, we can't retreat to our little islands and only think and report on what we've lived. In fact, your podcast is doing just the opposite. You're trying to reach for out from your island, from the island of your experience into yeah. a more communal, a communal, larger uh, um, sense of connection. And, yeah. and I, I feel that writing about what a woman went through, which is, of course, to some degree based on my understanding of what my wife went through, but not entirely. I did a lot of reading. I've spoken to a lot of other women. And I'm able to use, you know, whatever gift I have for imagining to put myself in her place. Honestly, it wasn't that difficult because, honestly, this experience is something that is communicable. You know, you can convey to people how difficult it is to go through infertility, to long for something that is missing in your life. And I, I explore that sense of longing centrally through Costanza's wish to have a baby, of course, in the book. But uh, there are other forms of missing information and other forms of longing for connection, for understanding uh, one's origins, for writing the past for coming to terms with a dead father or a difficult father or a difficult mother that also are present in this novel. So it really is, it is a tapestry into which I hope I've been able to weave various different threads, but many of them, of course, uh, coalesce in this story of, 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 of a woman yearning to have a baby. These are, these are, um, I think they're important things to talk about, to try to capture and to bring, um, you know, more into the, to the open, in the open conversations that people can have. But I think that the way that you conveyed Constanza in the book uh, had a lot to do with your journey with your wife. And then also, sometimes I feel like men and women, when they play the opposite role, they see things that they may necessarily not have seen before. Uh, for instance, like, I always say that men are better cooks than women, even if they don't want to admit it or, you know, just playing the opposite role. Sometimes we could be really good at it. And I think that's very, that's very yeah. interesting. I think, well, this is a big topic, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. We're, we're born into a world that it signs ideas about how we should be to the genders, right? Yeah. From the very earliest toys you give your child. I mean, there are studies have shown that people hold male babies differently from the way they hold female babies. It starts in the, you know, all of the cues are there in, on every level from the moment you come into this world. And a lot of them are just garbage, if you ask me. You know, we're all yeah. human beings. Yeah. And these divisions are very narrow and very limiting and, and very changeable, you know. And, you know, the biology of our bodies is, is not, not that changeable when it comes to reproduction. But everything else, I think, is open to conversation. A lot else is open to oh, conversation. Oh, yeah. I definitely agree. I definitely agree that um, <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, you know, you have to be at a level of self-awareness. And I, and I believe that it takes a lot of inner uh, workings and a lot of inner healing and reflecting to be able to come to a level of consciousness where you break away from what society says and what society perceives a woman should be able to do or a man should be able to do. And it takes a level of maturity as well, I think, 
to be able to open your mind and your heart to uh, a, a wider, a much wider view of the world than, I agree. than, than you normally would have based on societies what they say we should or can't do. You know what I mean? Each relationship is different. Therefore, I think that there's different rules. And um, I practice that a lot in our own marriage. We always say, you know, this is us. So we have to make it work for us and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and how we see things. Because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, when everybody else is gone, it'll just be you and I left, you know, together, still trying to make this thing work. And we have to evolve too. And I think that infertility pushes you to a level of, of evolving in openness that you may not necessarily have been willing to do so quickly um, had you not had the experience. I, I think that I was going to just make the, a similar point, Monique. I think difficult and painful though it is, you learn a lot from it, you know, and I think if we're conscious people, we want to learn and stretch and grow even through, or maybe because of yeah. difficult, difficult things that come at you. I was going to ask you a question and something that's also a bit, a bit of interesting to me as I've been thinking about the book and talking about it. And that is your parents to a, a three-year-old, right? A, a, a wonderful boy. Is the experience of what you went through gone or is it still part of you? And if so, to what degree? Because I have a lot of th- thoughts about this myself. The pain goes away. It's almost like the death of a loved one, someone very close to you. and the pain you can heal from, but it always stays with you. And especially when there's a diagnosis like myself who I have to continually be treated for it, even Mm -hmm. though I've had the successful IVF. Mm -hmm. And if I were to have another one, I'm going to be 37 later in 2020. Mm -hmm. If I chose to have a second baby, then I have to go through the process all over again. But of course, with a new mind, another, another, a new level of uh, maturity and a new level of patience because you learn a lot, a lot about patience too as well in the journey. And, Absolutely. I, and I think that um, it will always be something that I hold very dear to myself, even though it caused me a lot of pain, it's still something, it's like that, that gift that my grandmother gave me and she's gone now, but I still have that and I still have her and I still have those memories and I still have, I can reflect on those feelings without feeling the pain, but you know, but you can think back and still feel how you felt, if that yes. makes sense. Yes. And, um, and that's, that's part of the reason I started the podcast because it'll always be a part of me. It's something I could talk about for days because I had just become so passionate about infertility and the different, the, the, the so many intricacies that go along with infertility. There's so much you can say, and because everybody's experience is different, it's just so much that could be expounded upon when you speak about infertility. And it's something that'll never go away for me. I know a lot of people feel that way. They try to move on from it, but it never really leaves. It, it stays with you. And a lot of people feel like when they get the successful IVF, that it's gone now. No, it's not gone. It's still there. Mm-hmm. And it will always be there. I think, and I think, as we were saying earlier, these experiences change us as human beings, you know, and I think that they, in a perfect world, they teach you more compassion. You know, you take that yeah. compassion out forward into the world. In your, in your case, you're, uh, you've developed this podcast around it, but I'm sure it's, it's reverberated in other aspects of your life. I know sure. it has in mine, yeah. but I also know that uh, with these experiences that are so difficult in life, it's not that easy always to put them away. Yes, you don't, you're not in as painful, acutely painful a moment, of course, as you were when you were going through them. But it's, um, it's like the ring inside of a tree, something or the knot in a tree, you know, you grow beyond them, but those knots, those rings are still 
part of you. They're part of your, the very fiber of your being. Yeah. They help make you the person you are today. Yeah, absolutely. And it has definitely made me more empathetic. I was always a very empathetic, empathic type of person, but it has, it has taken that to a level that I didn't know was mm -hmm. completely possible. And, you know, like you said, it, <laughs> it's that, you know, it's that thing that does not go away, no matter how much you think you've gotten over it, or you, you think you have healed from it. And when I wrote a rough draft to the book uh, about my experience, I was writing, typing the pages, I should say, not writing, but typing the pages and everything that I, that I, that I typed out with every page, every word, I cried the entire time I wrote it because I felt like, and because now I had this baby, I had moved on from it in a way where I wasn't emotionally uh, um, centered around it anymore, but there was just still so much grief and pain and all these other different emotions that came out when I started typing it. And if I never released the book, I know, I know that it gave me more healing in mm -hmm. a way that it has allowed me to speak about it the way that I speak about it freely now, which I thought mm -hmm. I would never, ever do. Interesting. It, um, you've, you've put, you've put, your, you've put your, your struggle to good use from my point of view, because I think one of the great developments in the culture is a certain breaking down of these boundaries and of this, this secrecy and more openness around this, this topic in particular. I think to me, it helps make people who are going through it feel less lonely. Yes, absolutely. And, and I, that's one of the things that I've been saying a lot lately is that my experience, because I am such a consciously aware person, my experience has allowed me to turn my pain into a more purposeful uh, existence in creating the podcast and connecting with people and supporting other, you know, women and men after me who are going through the, the issues of infertility and fertility. And I also speak a lot about miscarriages and infant loss on the podcast as well. I, I like to think that it has brought me into a purpose that I may not have seen myself doing or have come into had I not had the experience with infertility and also being a NICU mom to a, to a premature baby. So sure. a lot of people move on from it and that's okay. But for me, I knew that it had to be more and I had to have, and I found, and I don't want to say, I, I hate when, to me, I hate to say that it pushed me into purpose, but it's also kind of true because I guess because I did a lot of soul searching after the fact that that's what allowed me to find purpose in the podcast and creating it. And for everybody, they don't see it that way. They just feel like, okay, it's just something that happened in life and, you know, life is crap sometimes, you know, but mm -hmm. I, I see things differently because of going through the journey and also just because of the way that I am as a person, I just, I just felt like it had to have been more than just something that just happened, just something right. crappy that happened in my right. lifetime. Well, I can sympathize because that's, of course, what, what, it, what it drove me to write this book, to write what is missing, was simply having lived through something so intense that I didn't know what to do with it. And so I had to put it down, a version of it down on the page. Absolutely, Michael, absolutely. And, you know, I, I cannot wait for everybody to read the book. And I, I, I challenge you guys and I'm pleading with you guys to get the novel. It's very different from a lot of the other books that are written as like self-help manual type for people having experiences and then they give tips and everything like that. And that's all great. That's all wonderful. But I think that you writing the story as a novel will give people a different perspective about infertility and also 
help them cope without you having to give the methods of coping with inside of the book as a self-help book kind of kind of a thing so that's what i really thought was unique about your book as well because it's the first of, of, of any kind of infertility book that i've ever read or have come across well thank you so much monique and thank you again for having me on this program i've appreciated it so much having a chance to tell my story and to talk to readers possible readers about my novel, What is Missing. Absolutely. And I, I will have everything in the show notes for you guys to connect with Michael on his website. I will also link the timepiece. It is very, very good. And you, I think you'll really enjoy that timepiece. And as well as, you know, different ways that you can get in touch with Michael so that you can order his book online and get to know him a little bit more too as well with his memoir that he's had many accolades for. And I thank you again, Michael, for coming on and, and speaking with me. This discussion was very great. I, I love it. Um, and and also thank you, from Monique. a male perspective. This is wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. Bye-bye. Thank you.